at 120 years of age. Moses, the great foundational prophet of Israel, had tons of life experience. As he neared his death, he challenged his people to commit themselves to convictions that they could live and die for. He spelled these convictions out in Deuteronomy chapter 34. It is the fifth book of the Old Testament, and as we join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, let me challenge you again to take up Dave's challenge to jot down this week 10 convictions you would be willing to live and die for. Now let's join Dave for part two of Leadership, the Next Generation. You have got to, in your life, get some convictions that you don't just flow with the flow. And one of the convictions I want you to have is the importance, just like Moses was committed to what we call the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with the fathers, I want you to be committed to it. You say, Dave, why should I be committed to it? Because the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that you have become part of this. I want you to turn to the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in the first century said that by a miracle of God's grace, we that are Gentiles, we that are not some of the physical chosen people of God, can take part in this Abrahamic covenant. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. He, that is the Lord Jesus, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abram, Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. He, that is God, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through the Messiah Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now notice what it says in the next verse. It begins to explain this. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been daily established, so it is in this case. Moses is referring to the law. What he's arguing in this passage is, does the Sinaitic covenant that was given in the book of Deuteronomy through Moses nullify the promise that God gave to Abraham that we've been talking about so far in our study? Now stay with me, because this isn't easy to follow. Paul is arguing, does the covenant of Moses nullify the covenant that was made to Abraham? And his answer is going to be no. And he's going to show how the promise to Abraham wasn't just a promise to the ancient Jewish people, the ancient Israelite people, but we can get in on it. And he talks to us how that becomes possible. Look what he says. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his... What's the next word there? Now, what did I tell you about seed earlier in our talk today? Seed can be... Plural, that's right, and seed can also be singular. Now let's look how Paul uses that. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now the scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, many, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is the Messiah. Paul has said that there was messianic implications to the promise made with Abraham. At the very beginning of Genesis 12, Paul is saying that the promise to Abraham was what picked up from Genesis 3, verse 15 and following, where it talks about the great deliverer that will be the answer for the problem that's come to the human race because of sin in Genesis chapter 3. 
And so Paul is saying that the promise of Abraham is rooted back to the promise made to Eve that there would come a great male deliverer. It was a messianic promise. And Paul is going on in his own life, he's saying, I believe that Jesus is that singular seed, that he is that promised one that would come. Now notice what else he says. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now here's what he's talking about. He's saying that at Sinai, what we've been studying in the book of Deuteronomy is we've been studying a law, the Ten Commandments. It goes on and it's developed 613 rules and regulations that we have all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. What we're closing the book of Deuteronomy with is that the law of Mount Sinai was not the only conviction that, that Moses lived for. It wasn't the only thing that Moses was committed to. Moses also was committed to a promise that reached back to a gracious, merciful promise made to Abraham. And that promise was that he would have a land, which he devoted most of his life to trying to lead his people to. Number two, that they become a great nation. And Moses got to see the people multiply and become a great nation. But the mystery of how in the world they would ever become a blessing to all the nations through the coming of this promised one was unfulfilled. In fact, if you look at the end of this chapter, look at Deuteronomy, the end of the very end of Deuteronomy 34. When it talks about the legacy of, of Moses in verse 10, it says this, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like who? Like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent to him in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of his officials, and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses in the Old Testament is the preeminent prophet. No prophet, when Deuteronomy was, was being edited, when the conclusion was being added, there was no prophet that was like Moses. Now, if I told you, as, as I'm finishing this book, there's never been a prophet like this before. There's never been a prophet like this since. What does that raise in your mind? What question does that raise in your mind? If I say there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, what does that raise? What possibility does that raise in your mind? We'll turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and let's see what Moses had in mind. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we're bringing together some of the ideas that we've had throughout this entire book. Deuteronomy 18. In verse 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses himself said this. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. In other words, it's good for Moses to represent Yahweh to the people. And for Moses to interact with Yahweh in a face-to-face -face way. No other prophet converse face-to-face. -face. But look what it says in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. So what does Moses predict will happen? He predicts, first of all, as the passage develops in Deuteronomy, he predicts, first of all, the Lord won't leave Israel without a prophetic witness. He promises that there will continue to be the Spirit of God that would speak through men, just like 
God spoke through him. In fact, in this text, in Deuteronomy 34, we have Moses laying his hands on Joshua. And Joshua becomes the next prophetic witness to the nation of Israel. He becomes the voice of God, the mouthpiece of God. But Deuteronomy 18 is also telling us that there's going to come a singular prophet, one that will parallel Moses. In fact, in the early chapters of John, if you turn to John, if you turn to John's gospel, fourth gospel, as the Jewish authorities come down from the city of Jerusalem in the first century to examine what's going on with John the Baptist, John chapter 1, and I want you to look at verse 21. As they're trying to figure out who in the world is John the Baptist, who in the world is this prophet that's crying out in the wilderness. Now stay with me. Look what they ask him. Verse 21, they asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? Now that was a question. Are you the Elijah that Malachi said would come before the, before the Messiah to announce the coming of Yahweh to his people? They're asking them, first of all, are you Elijah? Notice what else they ask him. He said, I am not. He said, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? What are they talking about? Deuteronomy 18. Are you this one that the book of Deuteronomy said would come? And what did he say? He said, no, I'm not. He said, no, I'm not the prophet. But as the passage develops, it says, he says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He says in verse 26, I baptize you with water. But among you there stands one who you do not even know. He is the one, in verse 27, after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. This all happened while John was baptizing at the other side of Jordan where John was baptizing. And it's the very next day where John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. What John the Apostle was saying, what Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 3, that the conviction of their heart and it's the conviction of my heart. I believe that Deuteronomy, the conviction of Moses, was a commitment to a promise. It was a promise that began with Abraham. And it involves the land. It involves Israel becoming a great nation. But it also involves this third part that somehow, through that people, there'd be a blessing to all the nations. I believe the conviction of my heart, one of the things that's on my list is I believe that Jesus Christ fulfills that ultimate blessing to all the nations. Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That if anyone believes in him, they won't perish, but they will have eternal life. And that's the conviction of my heart, is that Jesus is the one that brings all these promises of the prophet, the promise of the priest, the promise of the king from the Old Testament, all those promises culminate in the fulfillment of Jesus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3, one more New Testament reference to see how the New Testament brings the Abrahamic promise over to us that believe in Jesus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. The writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. What he's saying is, I want the conviction of your heart, the conviction of your soul, one of the things that you write on your list that you're willing to live and die for is to fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. Now, why should you do that? You say, Dave, why have you made the conviction of your heart to believe that Jesus is the one that brings a blessing? 
that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah. Look what it says, because he is faithful to the one who appointed him. I believe that Jesus was totally obedient to all of his Father's will. And now the writer of Hebrews makes a comparison. And I want you to see why this idea that Jesus is the new Moses wasn't my idea. It's not something that I came up with. It's very important to the New Testament scriptures. Notice what it says. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. The writer of Hebrews is not saying that the Old Testament scriptures were bad and they were evil, that they didn't apply, that they were wrong. He's not saying that at all. Often we get this gigantic discontinuity. And often in the history of Christianity we've gotten that, and that's wrong. The writer of Hebrews doesn't say that Moses was wrong. He's saying Moses was faithful in all of his house. As we carefully read the book of Deuteronomy, which is Moses' central writing, you might say, we learn about one that was faithful in the house of God. And it says he was faithful in all of his house, just as Moses was faithful in God's house. Now notice what it says in verse 3. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Why? That's an incredible statement. How could Jesus be worthy of greater honor than Moses that wrote this book of Deuteronomy that we're completing? And it tells us why in the very next line. Just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. So it's like, like Abner read to us. He said, Moses, the slave of God. So Moses was a household servant to God. Now notice what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. It says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are, this is the incredible part, we are his house. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. That needs to be the conviction of our life that we're going to hang on to the belief that we have now become the house of God. We have now become the body of Christ. We have now become the one in which God will reveal his presence, and we become that through Jesus. And so what we put it all together, the blessing to all the nations comes because Jesus was the seed of Abraham, born of Jewish, born in the land of Bethlehem, just like Micah said that he would, Doing the miracles, that's the purpose of the mighty miracles that Jesus did in John's gospel. And those seven incredible, powerful signs that John presents to us. And then it culminates with him, Isaiah 53, being the suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom for us. And yet he still prolonged his days, and so he had the promise of the resurrection. One of the convictions, one of the convictions I want you to have, one of the convictions that I want you to be willing to live and die for is the conviction that the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is filled for you in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that needs to be one of those things that you write down. And for some of you, even when I talk to you, even when I'm wrestling with this, like what I've just done over the last few minutes is something that often is not done in churches anymore because they, it's too hard. Americans can't grasp it. That's what I'm often told. I even have some people saying, you know, Dave, you know, don't write about that. It's just not relevant anymore. What I want you to know is that needs to be the heartbeat of your life. That needs to be what you live and die for. You say, well, Dave, why should I do that? 
Because when you die, I want you to be like Moses. You remember what Avner read to us about Moses dying? Who was with Moses when he died? Who does it say was with Moses when he died and who buried him? And no one knows. Who was with him? Tell me, everybody. God was with him. You know what I want to happen to me when I die? That's a journey where I've never been there before and I don't know how to get where I need to go. And I want it said about me that when I die, that God was with me when I die. That's why what we've talked about is so important for all of us. Because if you believe that Jesus is the one that brings a blessing, then Jesus promises that when we die, we'll be after from the body, home with the Lord. So what it says in this text about Moses can be true of all of us. You know, not that we, they won't know where they buried us, but all of us can have it said about us that we died, and because we believed in the Lord Jesus, because he died for us, because he rose again, we can believe that the Lord will carry us home to be with him, home to the land that he's promised us. You see, in the New Testament, you move from the physical land, you move to the heavenly land. It doesn't mean that God's through with the physical land. I believe that one day, ultimately, he's going to deal again with that physical land. I think he's started to do that. But the ultimate promise that we have as believers is we're looking forward to the heavenly land. And just like Moses had God with him when he died, just as Moses had God caring for him and he didn't need to be afraid, so can you have that too. And I covet that for every one of you. There's no reason why any of us should be growing older, scared to death about what's going to happen when we go up on that mountain and when we're going to have to die. And that's why this promise is so significant. So that's the heritage that Moses leaves to us, okay? Now, as I close today, this is the issue. I want all of you that are 45 or above to stand up. Everybody 45 or above, please stand up. Oh, the ladies are upset. Diane jumped right up there, good. 45 or above right here. I want all the 20 to 25-year-olds to stand up and everyone else sit down. I want all the 20 to 25-year-olds to stand up, okay? When the first Great Awakening hit the United States, this is the age group right here that created that movement of the Spirit of God. Jonathan Edwards was 24 or 25 when the first Great Awakening, when he went on that preaching tour. George Whitfield, the most powerful individual in pre-revolutionary America, was 24, 25 when he went on his preaching crusades. Want all of you older ones to look at these younger ones. And I want you to realize that you have a great responsibility to them. I want all of those that are 25 and below to stand up. Everyone 25 and below, stand up. I want all the older ones to look now at these. What we're talking about in this text is you are responsible to put your hands on this next generation. You are responsible to come alongside this generation. And what are you responsible to do? When Moses died, there was already, there was already a Joshua to take his place. I think it's really important to understand that. When the Lord took Moses home, Moses could go home to be with God in heaven, the dwelling place of God, and he could rest secure. You know why? Because he knew that he had already trained. He had already passed on his spirit. He had communicated the convictions of his heart. You know what? When you read the book of Joshua, what promise do you think Joshua was committed to? 
What promise do you think Joshua built his life on? Tell me. The Abrahamic promise. When you read the life of Joshua, you know what Joshua believed? Exactly what Moses believed. And I want all of you that are older, it's real, real important. Do you realize that most churches only have a viable, vital life for about 50 years? Most churches really only have a vibrant, powerful testimony for 50 years in church history. Well, I want to try to make that different. You say, well, Dave, why is that? Because it takes about 50 years for the founding fathers to kind of peter out, for the convictions to be lost, for the commitment to the Word of God, for the commitment to the Scripture, for the commitment to the Gospel. It takes about 50 years for that generation to die off. And most generations, most generations don't pass it on to the next generation. Godly leadership. How many of you have ever teased a deacon, called them deacon so-and-so? You know why you do that? Because you have the Holy Spirit working in your heart, and you need to go on and become an example. And you're teasing, and some of it's just all in good fun. But I want to share with you, we live in a generation... We live in a generation where nobody wants to be the generation that trains. Nobody wants to be the generation that lays out the conviction for the next generation. Nobody wants to assume responsibility. There is a desperate need in the church of Jesus Christ across the United States for the next generation to say, we will assume responsibility for right conviction. We will assume responsibility for getting into the faith, for understanding it. In other words, we're not going to just be bored when we're studying the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to be willing to discipline ourselves, and you don't just need to give us sound bites. You don't just need to give us video images. We'll wrestle. We don't understand all there is to know about this seed thing. But we can sense that there's something there in that promise to Abraham that, that's eternal. And we're going to learn about it. And we're going to study this thing. And we're going, to, we're going to get so we know the biblical message. So that we can lead the next generation. And so they'll preserve those convictions. What I talked to you about today, what I talked to you about today, will carry you into eternity. Whether you know it or not. Some, it's not the most exciting thing in the world to talk about in a lot of ways. But it carried Moses into eternity. That's a pretty neat thing. It carried Joshua into the next generation. And I want to do the same thing for you. And so what I'd like all of you to do, I'd like all of you to take a sheet of paper the next few weeks, and I want you to start jotting down point one. I'm willing to live and die for this. Number two, I'm willing to live and die for this. Number three, I'm willing to live and die for this. I'll give you an idea like my list. I told you about one of them. Number one in my list is I believe that Jesus is the Messiah that fulfills the Abrahamic covenant and can bring a blessing to all the nations. Number two, I believe that the Bible is God's inspired word of God. Number three, I believe in the virgin birth. Number four, I believe Jesus is coming back again. That's some of my list. Those are things that I think I'm committed to. I'm willing to live and die for. I want you to get your list down. I want you to make your list. The second thing I want you to do is after you make your list, I want you to ask yourself, how am I passing this on, number one, to my kids? How am I passing this on to my kids? And number two, how am I passing it on to the next generation?